Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, Stephen Duckett, whose search with wife Fiona for the perfect terroir to grow the champagne grapes in England led to a grassy valley in the Chilterns. The result, Hundred Hills, a sparkling success story. The wines grace some of the most exclusive restaurant tables. So how did they do it? From a dairy farm in the Somerset Levels, via Silicon Valley, California, to the Chilterns, growing grapes to rival those found in the vineyards of Champagne. Stephen Duckett, together with his wife Fiona, have had quite a journey. Hundred Hills is no technology millionaire plaything, however. The couple were determined to get it right, building a sustainable business to pass down the generations. And meticulous attention to detail lies at the heart of their mission to produce the finest English sparkling wines. The couple are hands-on with Stephen as the winemaker. I caught up with him to hear their story and began by welcoming him to the drinking hour. Thank you, David. So, from a dairy farm in the Somerset levels, um, and I can empathise with the dairy farm bit because I was brought up on one <laughs> on the Isle of Wight, um, to um, Silicon Valley, California, and yes. I've been there, but certainly never done anything important there. And now the Chilterns growing grapes to rival those grown in uh, Champagne. It's quite a journey. Just tell us in sort of headline form uh, a little about your previous life, as it were. Yeah, sure, David. Look, I grew up on the farms in Somerset. The family had farmed uh, the Somerset levels for generations, you know, nearly a thousand years, and was very much expected to head onto the farm as I became 16 with a tractor driving license in my back pocket. You know, that it's a beautiful part of the world to grow up, and I loved it out on the farms, but I became entranced with personal computers and computing. I was lucky enough to be pretty good at maths, and so it quickly became apparent that my, my future lay at least in the near term, uh, in, in that part of the tech world. Um, I was lucky enough to go to, to Oxford to study engineering, economics and management. And I spent uh, time after that then getting more and more deeply involved in the tech world. I had a chance to go to, to, to Harvard. And from there, it was all tech for me as the sort of internet revolution landed right in front of me. So this is sort of the early 90s. And we're just beginning to see the very first sort of commercial web browsers the world was your oyster if you could understand you know, well enough how to program, how software programming worked and, and how you could see how the internet might reshape our lives. 
it was full of opportunity. And so I spent the next 20 years involved, first in very small businesses, getting involved in, in very young businesses and starting them up through the, the, the sort of internet, internet bubble in 2000 and on then into bigger businesses in, in the internet as those businesses grew and grew. So fantastic first career. A lot of flying back and forth to California because that was the heart of it, as you say, Silicon Valley. And, you know, while I was there, that was, you know, always, always a love of wine. But certainly, you know, that, that flying, whenever you flew into San Francisco, particularly in the latter parts of my career, you were inevitably taken out to one of the beautiful wineries in the Napa Valley or the Sonoma Valleys. And the entertainment, the quality of the wines, the whole, the whole piece was entrancing, even for someone who was familiar with the, the world of wine in Europe. And so very important formatively, you know, both in my latter, my second career, as I call it, as well as as well as being an enjoyable part of my first. And I have to be sensitive in the way I ask this. You've clearly done very well. And there is a kind of type of person who goes and, you know, does well and goes and buys a vineyard. And you see that a bit in Napa. <laughs> uh, you certainly see it in Canada and yeah. the Okanagan Valley. And you see these um, uh, fantastically wealthy silver foxes um, who don't necessarily... <laughs> obviously do that much work but they very much like having the property and having the vineyard now you're not quite that person really um you are different yeah definitely not that person I mean you know I grew up on the farms and so I'd always known my second career would be back out on the land and and I'm I'm pretty entrepreneurial uh, you know by nature and so you know I think we'll probably talk about this a little more but as as it became clearer to both my wife Fiona and I uh, during the course of the the sort of 2000-2010 period um that that Really making beautiful wines in England was a serious commercial family business proposition. You know, as that became became more real, you know, I got I got very excited about that prospect. But as you say, I'm hands on. I don't see myself ever retiring in, in, in uh, you know, at any stage unless I was forced to by Ill, Ill health or something. But otherwise, you know, I intend to be doing this for a very long time. And, you know, both Fiona and I have enjoyed the whole prospect of getting involved from day one in every little detail here. And I think if, if for those people you know, listening who come to see 100 Hills, I hope they'll see what I mean. There's a lot of detail here. It's very personal. Uh, we've taken enormous care in the way we put together our, our vineyards, our winery, and, and ultimately our wines. So yes, you know, I'm, I'm the, the winemaker here as well. And so very involved, hands-on day-to-day. This is where you'll find me. Yeah. And you're clearly someone who uh, believes in the importance of detail, research, exhaustive research. Um, I think your background in tech probably has uh, something to do that, the way your uh, brain works, your love of maths and that uh, kind of thing. Uh, Tell us about how you went about finding the perfect spot for your vines. Yeah. So look, look, for me, for me, vineyards in particular are all science. There's certainly plenty of art, plenty of room for art in the wineries, but, but in the vineyards for me, it's all science. So, you know, Fiona and I became very excited, you know, in, 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 back in, Back in 2000, when a friend gave us blind, our first English sparkling, much better than we'd expected. And we spent the next two or three years trying to understand why that was. And it's, it's sort of embarrassing to say it now. But the answer after two or three years was quite clear. It was that it wasn't that the climate was changing. It was that the climate had changed. And when we looked at the way the climate in southern England overlaid with the climate you'd seen in Champagne, which is only 100, 150 miles south, uh, over the sort of you know, the period of, you know, 1900 to 1970, it was obviously very similar. And we were well aware that most of the world's chalk is in northern France and southern England. It, it, it pops up in some, some very famous spots, Burgundy and Champagne most notably, comes under the English Channel and re-emerges in the South Downs and Chiltern Hills as well as other little outcrops. But there is an awful lot of chalk around. Chalk is really, really interesting and useful stuff. 
most most obviously for me it has two critical features one vines really struggle in chalk and secondly it free drains which if you're going to plant vines in england is extremely important so we began to seriously look at undertaking a project looking for the right land all across southern england and to do that as you whenever you know, i've started a number of businesses in my life whenever you do you need to build a team around you that knows what good looks like. And I think we'll come on to talk about perhaps Michelle Salk a little later. But Professor Salk was, had, had been very involved at, at Rotary. He'd started up the vineyards for Rotary Estate in the Anderson Valley in California. He taught winemaking and had grown up in Epinay. He was a lovely person to work with and a real expert in his field. And so we teamed up with Michelle and then began our search, really looking all across southern England, but particularly in chalk valleys. I think chalk valleys have a number of features. I've talked a little bit about the chalk, but also the slopes, the airflow those, those bring, often wooded around the vineyards, which can be very helpful for a number of reasons. So lots of, lots of, lots of little things we were, we were even initially looking for. We ended up looking over three years at over 300 sites, and we looked at 100 in detail with um, sampling soils. Michelle had access to CIVC and Champagne to do so but also then doing climate modelling. And a lot of climate modelling, it's microclimate modelling, really. I mean, the, the macro data is easy to obtain, but the microclimate data is very important. And you're really looking at, I think, particularly how air flows actually around, around the land. So a lot of that's topographical. There's a lot of data available. So, yes, a very, very sort of scientific approach to selecting the land. There are a number of features I think you need in England if you're going to plant vineyards that are going to be commercially successful and really allow you to produce very high-quality wines. And there aren't as many good locations as people think. Uh, you, you hear a lot of myths out there around perhaps planting on south-facing slopes and the like, which are really just that, just myths. They, they may have some grain of, grain of truth to them, but only a grain. There's a lot more you need. You know, even the thinnest band of, of clay will often make, make uh, land unsuitable for vineyards in certain locations. Lots and lots of little details that all matter. So, yes, a huge effort over three years before we finally got to 100 Hills. You know, an exhaustive search. I don't think we ever gave up. We knew there was land that was, was interesting. We were looking at a lot of land that wasn't for sale. So we, we knew we would be inevitably left looking for land sometimes that we couldn't acquire. But finally, after three years, we found the land here in the Stoner Valley in Oxfordshire, which was absolutely perfect for, for what we were looking for and has proved to be ever since. And was that a eureka uh, moment when you saw Hundred Hills uh, for the first time? <laughs> um, no, I wouldn't describe it as a eureka moment. I certainly knew when I saw it for the first time that it, it was interesting and potentially suitable, but it's not until you see the data. It's not until you see the, the granular data on the soils. It's not until you, you really model model airflow properly uh, you really look at the orientations of the valley the orientations of the woodland that you really understand what that really is does have everything you're looking for um so no no eureka moment but i think as i got deeper into the data 100 hills in particular there was a moment where we thought yes this really this really is it um and as we began to negotiate for the land i, I think we realized you know sometime in the, in the latter part of 2012 that we'd finally found found our home yeah, you're probably a bit too data-driven and scientific for a eureka moment, <laughs> I suspect. Um, My eureka moments here have come actually uh, when, we've, when we've been making wines and tasting wines, particularly base wines. There have been certain years and certain vintages and certain base wines I've tasted that I still remember where you've said to yourself, gosh, yes, that really, that really is everything we'd, we'd hoped we could, we could bring to bear here. So the Eureka moments have come, you know, often, often tasting base wines in April um, and sometimes tasting finished wines uh, as, we, as we begin to release wines. But the vineyards, as I say, for me, are so data-driven. We do, we do so much out there. We, we have 
you know, have lots of different sensors out there. We do research with the Horizon Fund. We're monitoring vines, you know, all the time, extremely closely, 10 parcels. We're reacting in real time as the situation changes every year. And all of that is pretty data-driven. It, it's scientific. As I say, I think when you're tasting wines and creating wines, there's a lot more art involved. Tasting base wines is an art form. There's only so much you can measure that's useful. But out in the vineyard, we're really, we're really pretty data-driven, yeah. And that analysis that was undertaken, as you mentioned, uh, most of it in Champagne, courtesy of uh, Michel Salk and his uh, yes. connections there. Just tell us about um, what you were able to do, because as I understand it, they were kind of quite foxed by your soils and, and, and rather thought they came from Champagne. Well, I think I think you, you've probably we're probably not the only people who've seen that, but there were four or five times looking across the 300 sites where we sent um, soils and subsoil samples across and they'd ask Michelle, where in the Cote de Blanc do these come from? They really are extremely similar. And that's no surprise, as I say, the, ch- the chalk literally is coming under the channel and re-emerging. So, yeah, there's, there's, certainly, no, there's no, certainly no surprise in that. And I think, you know, that's what makes this, this project 100 Hills so interesting. I mean, not only do you know the climactic conditions and, and how grapes responded to those, but you also, you also know you've got the same soils. And so... Well, you know, as I always say, the Australians have done a wonderful job in trying to convince us that Pinot Noir is one thing and Cabernet Sauvignon another and and Chardonnay another in terms of grape varietals. In fact, it's a lot more complex than that. I mean, as most people listening to this will be aware, uh, all of those those varieties have their clones, often many hundreds of clones. And what you're really interested in is not just what grows well in the vineyard, but what makes beautiful wine when it has grown well. And so what really attracted Fiona and I to, to, to 100 Hills and to the opportunity here was understanding exactly what we needed to plant, exactly where. So we, we not only had Michelle's network, which, for example, allowed us to work with Pierre-Marie Guillaume and Guillaume Nursery down in Chassaigne in France, who are real experts in the genetics of Pinot Noir and, and, and Chardonnay. But it also, you know, it also allowed us to, to be confident that if you planted Chardonnay 95 on a steep chalk slope with very little soil, it could produce absolutely beautiful Blanc de Blancs as it had done in the Champagne region over many, many decades. And that's what's really unusual, because I think so often in the wine world, you see people plant a vineyard. And really, if it's, if it's, if it's good, it could take 20 to 30 years to work out what works and what doesn't and, and what parts of these vineyards are, are really going to provide interesting grapes and interesting wines. You have a very interesting clone of Pinot Noir, don't you? Well, you have a number of uh, very interesting clones, I should say. Yeah. But you have a particularly <laughs> unusual one for this country. Yes, we do. I think we're probably still the only the only planting of, of a Pinot Noir clone called Graplash here uh, in 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 England. Graplash means loosely loosely clustered, and when you see the berries on on Graplash, they they the bunch doesn't close. The bunch not closing is extremely helpful in England if you if you are in a season where you're under a lot of pressure from botrytis in particular or other mildews because water can't get trapped in the bunch, and so it allows that that, that um, clone in particular to stay on the vine a very long time. And it wouldn't be unusual for us to be harvesting that clone into early November. Um, it creates a beautiful, complex uh, Pinot must, and we've been able to make some absolutely beautiful wines for it. It crops up in both Burgundy and Champagne in various, in various places. But it's an extremely unusual clone. But I mean, all the clones here, we've 10 very different parcels. We're all selected very, very carefully, not just for their sort of aspect and soils and they're all high quality low yielding clones but they were really selected on on the basis of the understanding of of how they'd really performed in terms of making beautiful wines in the post-war period in in, in Champagne and it was having that data that that's really provided us so much of a head start in terms of the wines we can make and create. 
And it's a kind of simplification, but a, a very good one in many respects, because it's easy for people to understand that it's been behind the embrace of English sparkling wine by punters to a very great extent. Uh, what you talked about yes. with this chalk that goes under the channel, the Paris Basin, um, the parallels with yes. champagne. However, yes. we are different uh, in this country, um, despite climate change and its effects and it's not as straightforward as i have a hill south facing i have chalk um, <laughs> off i go is it no it's very much not and look you know we are very focused here on making english sparklings english wines that represent our very distinctive terroir here in in, in the stoner valley you know the, the we you know i think there are three influences really in the wine world that are obvious for what what we're doing here of course, one of them is the traditional method of making sparkling wines that's been employed in Champagne for centuries. But actually, we only make vintage wines here, so much more Burgundian in our approach in that we're really trying to express often single parcels, vintage by vintage in our wines, and, and really taking a very minimalist approach to winemaking. So we are never blending across, across multiple vintages. We're trying to just showcase what can be done in each particular vintage. Uh, so that's a, you know, that's a very important part of what we're doing here. And look, I think, you know, English, English wines are, are, and English sparklings have very much their own identity. Uh, we have a number of wines here that uh, when, in fact, we were tasting this morning with um, some very experienced tasters from Japan. We tasted a couple of the wines, particularly our, our bled rosé, what the French call a rosé de Seigneur. It is very English. It is very distinctive. Um, and that's the beauty of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay around the world, isn't it? That they, they express themselves so uniquely in different terroirs. And we're certainly getting that expression here. And that's really what's exciting. And, you know, we get plenty of vintage variation as well, which in terms of what we're doing allows us to create not only distinctive wines every year, but, but interesting wines across, across vintage as well. And so although there are, of course, themes to uh, the way we, we, we manage our vineyards here and the way the land expresses itself and the vines and their rootstocks express... Nonetheless, you know, there are some very distinctive wines here. So, so yes, of course, there's always a comparison to, to, to Champagne. And, you know, we are, we are you know, often appearing, but we're often appearing alongside Champagnes. In fact, almost always, whether it's, whether it's in you know, restaurants like the Manoir Quatre Saisons, the Fat Duck, or whether it's, you know, in, in, in the hotels where we, we feature in, in London, Claridge's, Dorchester, Goring, etc. So, you know, I think they're very complementary in that sense. And, you know, I would say, you know, one of the fascinating things about the wine world is one of those crowded markets in the world. So in a very funny sense, you're not competing ever with anyone. It's so crowded out there. You've just got to do your own thing and do it really well uh, and find, you know, find spots in the market where you make beautiful wines that people really love, uh, that you really love uh, and can stand on their own two feet. And I think the benchmark certainly was very helpful at the start for English sparkling wine because it kind of established a quality point and a price point. But yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah. English sparkling wine is different. For you, what makes English sparkling wine different? In simple terms, how do you define it as different to champagne? Well, look, I mean, we have the opportunity because of the, the climate we're experiencing here to keep our grapes on the vine for a long time. And by a long time, I mean, it is not unusual for us to have our grapes on the vine for over 110 days from flowering to when they're picked. So we're picking in middle to late of October. And that's allowing um, our, our grapes to really develop a lot of complexity and intensity. Because most of the, uh, most of the uh, intensity of, of aroma and flavor molecules is, is created right at the end of 
you know, the, 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 the time the grape is on the vine. That's when, that's when the vine is putting all its energy into making its grapes as tasty as possible for birds. So from, from, a, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, that's when it's all happening. And it's not linear. It's very nonlinear. We often pick in passes that are maybe 10 days, sometimes 15, 20 days apart. And when you taste those wines, they're very different. And so I think that is becoming a really distinctive difference. I mean, our, our, our wines are, are very, um, very fruit forward, plenty of aroma and, and flavors. They have plenty of intensity. And, you know, that is, that is really, really quite distinctive. If you taste, uh, you know, whether you're tasting our blanc, blanc de blancs from the top of the hill or whether you're taking our, tasting bled roses, they're, they're very intense and very, very different. So, you know, we try to keep, I've tried, I try to keep, you know, the wines age on leads for a long time, but I try and keep that more in the background than you would, you probably see in, in a champagne because I think they provide a nuance, but it should be no more than a nuance for our wine. So, you know, I think that's quite distinctive. And, and obviously the piece that then combines with that to make English, English sparkling so, so um, distinctive is that we can reliably get a, a really lovely spine of acidity through to the wines. And if, if, you, if, you, um, if you, you know, focus carefully in the vineyards, you know, we can even make wines here uh, that are non-malolactic, beautifully balanced, but have that really lovely spine of acidity that not only works beautifully uh, in a parity form, but actually because of the complex intensity the wines have in their own right, pairs beautifully with food. And so we, we you know, 100 Hills, you can find 100 Hills in, in many, many of the top restaurants in London and all around the UK, being typically being prepared with very delicate, very specific dishes by sommeliers and chefs. Because of that, they're very distinctive and quite different. But it's, I think it's that combination of real phenolic ripeness with a lovely spine of acidity that, that lends a natural balance to the wines. Um, that is really becoming quite distinctive. Yes, it certainly is. On malolactic fermentation, it sounds a bit techy, but it's it's really important here. Uh, obviously, <laughs> yes. malolactic fermentation is uh, the transition from malic acid to lactic acid, and um, it's malic acid is uh, obviously uh, sort of rich in kind of apple character. It can be quite sharp uh, if you don't go through mallow in in the sparkling wines many people in england um, automatically choose to go through mallow a few choose not to where are you in that sort of debate then well i i suppose i don't see it particularly as a debate what we're trying to do in many ways is is every year produce the very best wines we can five or six vintage wines from our vineyards and and as we as we um, begin to press the must and as we begin to taste the best base wines we begin to make decisions about whether we think these wines present better as a, with, with a malolactic, with a, perhaps with a partial malolactic, or perhaps without a malolactic at all. We often settle for the latter without a malolactic. We work a lot with wood here, with big uh, oak, oak, oak barriques and, and lots, of, lots of barrels. And certainly for our Chardonnays, those, though that the, the wood can, can help soften off the edges to a non-malolactic wine. We also do quite a lot of recirculating of the fine leaves, what the French would call batonnage, which I also help, think helps do a little bit the same thing. And of course, we're prepared to age our wines for a very long time as well. So three, four, five, six, seven years on the leaves would, would not, you know, all, all are very much within the range of what we're doing at the moment. And so I think with all of those, it, it's really a case of how you think the wines pre present best. I mean, what we're typically doing as, as, as harvest harvest uh, is in full flow is we're out every day and what we're typically measuring is malic acid levels because it's those that are really changing for us in october the sugar labels aren't really changing at all given the temperatures at that time of year but the malic acid levels are still dropping it feels day by day 
um, as the vine as, as the vine uses malic acid as its energy source to complete its complete its work for the season. And so, particularly if we're thinking we might might end up making non-malolactic wines, we're very conscious of where those levels are because the moment you pick the grape. That is what you're going to taste 10, 20 years later when you drink the wine. We're not going to play with that acid structure often at all. So certainly in 22, 23, uh, we've not made any wines that, 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 uh, with a malolactic. But in some vintages, it, it can make sense. We've made some beautiful wines with a partial malolactic. And in 19, we used a malolactic on a lot of our wines, notably our, our, our Blanc, Blanc de Noir and, and a number of our other wines, just because we felt we'd be better able to balance and present those wines in those years where we had beautiful intensity and complexity in in the grapes, but still pretty high levels of malic acid at the end of a very cool season. And so there I felt it did help us to take, take those, those wines through, uh, through a malolactic, which in that, that, again, without being too, too technical, was co-inoculated at the time. But in other times, we'll taste the base wines and decide to undertake a partial malolactic after, after that. So there are lots of tools you have in your armory. I think it, for us, though, it's about, it's about being as, you know, as true, to, as true to the musts and, and the vines as possible. You know, we're really trying to, you know, great wines are made in vineyards, not made in wineries. And we're trying to do as little as possible, albeit with a lot of technology in the winery. So we're really trying to add as little as we can, take as little as we can away. You know, we don't fine our wines. We often don't filter our wines. And we're using a lot of technology to do that. But it's all with the, it's all with the principle of trying to really present the terroir as cleanly and crisply and perfectly as we can. And this is where you're different uh, from those um, you know, silver foxes in the Okanagan I mentioned earlier who might go and buy themselves the best winemaker uh, in the market. You decided to make the wine yourself, but you had some um, expert guidance uh, for uh, quite a while from Michel Salk, didn't you? Yes, look, I, you know, I effectively was fortunate enough to have a private tutor in, in Michelle for seven years. So um, we, we, we studied a lot and, and then worked together on, on wines a lot. And I was fortunate enough through his, his network and some, some very generous um, winemakers in Champagne, the likes of Laurent uh, Champ and Vilmar and others, who, who not only, um, who, who not only uh, opened up their wineries to help us understand you know, how, how they were making wines, but allowed us to taste based wines and follow their evolution. Um, so really, a, a really superb sort of almost an old old fashioned uh, tutelage, really uh, an apprenticeship, you could call it. Um, and I love that. Uh, you know, it's an endlessly interesting topic. You can get as complex as you like, but at the end, as I say, there is still quite a lot of art in there. You can't you can't measure everything you'd love to be able to measure in terms of, of what really matters in wines. And so you have to rely on that extraordinary titrator you have in the form of your palate. And uh, that that training, that teaching was very, very important in, in especially in making of sparkling wines. It's particularly important, I think, because it is a very, very delicate process. And the base wines are just so, so, so totally different from what they'll become with age and with the second fermentation. Yeah, they really are. And you know, I suppose we should do some dates here. Uh, when did you plant? When did you get your first grapes? When did you produce your first wine? Well, we, we, found, we found the land and finally bought the land in 2012. We then spent a, a couple of years, really, or best part of a couple of years, uh, preparing the land for planting. It, nothing had ever been done with the land. It had been uh, virgin land, fallow land, for as long as anyone could remember. Um, but it still needed quite a lot of preparation to get it ready for, for planting. So we planted on uh, May, May the 1st, Labor Day, on uh, 2014. And we planted um, 68,000 of what was ultimately 86,000 vines uh, over three days. We were very fortunate. We had, you know, near perfect conditions for planting, which I only subsequently understand just how important the perfect conditions are. Um, and 
uh, we were very fortunate. You know, I, I think we've been warned by Pierre-Marie Guillaume that, that he hadn't done at that time anything else in England and that it might be that we could lose, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten percent of the vines. Um, but in fact, we lost 42 of the 68,000 we planted, uh, which was a testimony not just to their work, and, but a lot to our work and also, as I say, really perfect conditions. So we allowed those vines then to, 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 to settle in and obviously begin to begin to express themselves, initially cutting them right back. So we'd be cutting back to two buds, four buds, six buds, really, really very allowing very little great formation. And then in 2016, after we'd completed the build of the winery here at 100 Hills, we weren't going to make a, a wine in 2016, but as the vintage developed, it was clearly a very interesting vintage for what we were trying to do in terms of long aging wines. We literally had a bunch or two on each vine, so it was utterly uncommercial. But it was a chance for me to work closely with Michelle on, on winemaking and really begin to begin to see that in, in action. And we were able to make a small quantity of some really beautiful wines, that um, we've half of which are, are in, in cellars of various private collectors around the country, and the other half will be probably released in, on our 10-year anniversary. It's certainly a very long-aging wine. So the, most of our wines, we released that in, in sort of, December of 2020 um, and have started to steadily release wine since then. I think we've no plans to grow 100 Hills in terms of the, the, the vineyards we have available to us. And so we're now only growing because we happen to be releasing more, more wine every year. And that's, um, you know, we, we just release wines. We, we taste twice a year um, and we release wines when we think they're ready and we're happy with them and if we love them. And if we don't, we, we, we sell them off elsewhere. And tell us about the small suite of wines that you produce. I was fortunate enough to taste uh, some of these delicious wines. Um, uh, tell us how you go about deciding what your range is. Yeah, well, I think the, the, the principle is very clear here that all tastings are done blind. And so we'll typically, you know, come, come April time, we'll have about 25 to 30 base wines which are a combination of the 10 different parcels different passes through them perhaps different presses of those of those parcels and some of them will be perhaps in barrels some some only in stainless steel and we'll taste all of those blind and we we work with a couple of professional tasters from from champagne who do nothing in life pretty much but taste base wines but i think if you're trying to create wines that are genuinely going to be there for 10 20 30 years it's good to be sat around the table with people who've been doing it for at least 10 20 30 years and you, you know we try to just focus hard on creating the best and most distinctive wines we can from that vintage each year we've been doing this now we're into our eighth vintage there are probably a couple of wines which you know I, I can't see us not producing in a season unless it was extremely unusual the first is preamble number two and preamble number two is a, is a wine that showcases what late harvesting really delivers at 100 hills it's typically made from uh, grapes that have been picked in the dying days of october always with 110 plus days on the vine you know really demonstrates that late harvest very rich opulent um style we can we can create in our with our with our grapes and our terroir here uh, and it's it's been incredibly popular for us. So I think, you know, we are always focused on creating something that really showcases late harvesting. I think, secondly, we have, uh, you know, over the years blind, the first five years of 100 Hills harvests, every year blind, we selected the same little parcel, Hilltop, single parcel, as the best candidate for a Blanc de Blanc, um, Chardonnay only, sparkling. It's probably not a coincidence. It's Hilltop. Hilltop is is both uh, very thin soils on chalk, you know, literally 20, 30 centimetres of calcareous soil on a, on a 250 metre soft chalk base down to an aquifer. 
Uh, so the vines really struggle up there. But also, you know, valley vineyards are a little unusual in that they're warm at the top and the bottom. And so because the cold air is always rolling away, particularly at night. And so it's probably the warmest little spot on the, on, on the vineyard as well. And if you're going to make beautiful Blanc de Blancs, you do want that richness for Chardonnay to stand on its own. I think having blinds selected that five, six, seven times, having a single parcel that you showcase every year in, in terms of vintage variation is fascinating and the wines are beautiful. So I think it's unlikely we won't make a Blanc de Blanc from that parcel going forward. After that, it just depends. Uh, you know, I think we need very specific characteristics for making Blanc de Noirs. The first we released was 2019. Uh, it's it's a lovely wine. I'd had a go at making it in 2018, but wasn't happy with the results. I think Blanc de Noirs can often be a little heavy if, in, in warmer vintages. And, you know, we try now, if we can, to make a, a, a bled rosé, French would call a rosé de saigne. That's a very, very distinctive wine, but you need the Pinot Noir grapes to be in exactly the right place. I mean, we're going through and with, with very experienced team trying to pick particular bunches for that for that wine because we're going to crush it rather than bunch press. And so it's really a very distinctive wine. Can't make it every year, but would love to make it whenever we can. And then we'll just see, you know, just see what we think is really interesting in the lineup of wines that we have available to us. So sometimes there'll be lovely crystalline rosés. There is even a zero dosage. I said I'd never make a zero dosage because I think um, dosage sugars add a lot to sparkling wines. But there was one wine where we just felt it was really interesting to keep those, um, you know, completely zero dosage free notes in the wine. Um, so it really does depend year by year. Those are limited edition wines for us. We'll be making a few thousand bottles and they're mainly for, uh, you know, our, our collectors who, who already know our wines and, and love our wines, as well as actually the sommeliers who love pairing these little little niche wines with all sorts of beautiful dishes that their, their chefs are creating in the kitchen. So mm. that's sort of how we set up every year. But we try not to go with preconceptions. I'm a big fan of doing everything blind, whatever we're tasting and really properly blind. Um, I think that that's that's your best your best way towards the truth. Yes. And uh, what a, a a beautiful range of wines. I'm looking back at my tasting notes uh, when I came to visit you. And uh, I mean, the, the Blanc de Blanc was showing incredibly well. The 2019 that day, so charming. And then that Blanc de Noir you mentioned, the 2019, just such incredible focus in that wine. Yes. Well, we had a lovely day with um, Jancis Robinson, who came out to taste everything we'd, we'd done at the end of last year. And I think that was sort of 13, 14 different wines we presented with chances. And uh, Rupert and I always joke, we were working through the wines one after the other. And we, we talked about the Blanc de Noir and we were on to the next wine, which we were talking about. And we noticed chances just stayed on that wine for a little longer and kept asking questions, kept asking questions. It was certainly one of her favourites. It's been very, very popular here. You know, I love, I love Blanc de Noirs when they, when they are... You know, they're like that when they've got plenty of freshness, but, but all of the, the, the beautiful roundness and complexity of uh, the Pinot Noir can bring. As I say, I think so often it's, it's very easy for those wines to be just a little heavy and a little forced. So they are difficult. There's some of those difficult sparklings, I think, to make, but are very enjoyable and very rewarding when you get one right, <laughs> I think. Yes, I bet. And you do actually also, um, kind of slightly under the counter, make a second wine, don't you? Uh, using your daughter's social media marketing prowess. Yes, yes. But we, um, my, my daughter, Amy, works with me every day, which is an absolute privilege and um, real pleasure to work with her. And, you know, she spent some time at London School of Fashion and her, her friends designed, uh, came up with a design for an English Sparkling, which is a project I gave them that, that uh, was a little, little younger, a little younger orientation, perhaps a little more Instagrammable, a little more, uh, you know, media friendly in that sense. And we loved the design they came up with, which was called Doe-Eyed Queen. And um, we ended up producing it. And we, yes, it's become our, our, second, our second wine. We 
we don't really, we haven't really done much to date marketing. It sells very, very well from the winery. It sells to uh, quite a lot of uh, those lovely English summer season events. So we've had it at Wimbledon and we've had it at Ascot. And we've had it at uh, a lot at Henley, the Henley, uh, Henley Festival and Regatta here. So it's, it's a big, it's, a, it's actually become quite a best. I mean, we started out, I think we made a thousand bottles for the first edition of Doe-Eyed Queen, thinking that might be the last thousand, but it proved to be extremely popular, and it uh, it will will probably make twenty five thousand bottles of it this year. So it really has grown quite considerably, um, and it's great fun. Yeah, I mean, it gets more social media hits in a day than I get in a month. So, <laughs> but it, it really is really fun. Your business model is very interesting because uh, you have a very particular size and scale in mind, which you're pretty much at now. And unlike a lot of businesses, um, which are all about growth uh, and ambition in that respect, um, you have a a very different and very firm view, don't you? Yes, I suppose I do. I mean, you know, in terms of ambition, my ambition is to make serious world-class sparklings over the course of the next 25 years. And and that is the focus of everything we do at 100 Hills. I mean, that that is what we're trying to do. We are not looking to grow in terms in a volume sense the vineyards here are, are, are delivering everything we want and the winery is the perfect size for those vineyards we only work with our own grapes we only we only produce our own our own wines I, look i think you know i think if you look around the wine world it's it, it's a tough world it's a tough it's a tough business you know i think everybody in wine knows that wine is is a tough place to be as i say it's 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 a very crowded market it's uh, so in that sense super competitive so you know i spent quite a lot of time before getting involved really understanding how we how we could successfully build a proper family business and i suppose my conclusion of that work or one of the conclusions at least was that there are certainly some economies of of scale in 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 a wine producer like ours but there are also some diseconomies and you know thinking about that balance is very important you know, I think once you get over a certain size in England, you have no alternative but to uh, work with and, and appear in the supermarkets and, and multiple chains. And look, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a, that's a perfectly good business. But it, but strategically, it keeps you out of other parts of the wine market. And I think particularly, uh, it, it makes it very difficult to to be a serious contender in some of the best restaurants and hotels in the country, because with the best will in the world, they, they, they are not that interested in having their, the wines they have on their list uh, that are inevitably and, and properly do reflect the cost they, they have in serving those wines, price checked and, and being found to be sort of 25% off in Waitrose. That is not really a runner. And so I think you're, you, you have to choose a strategy in the wine world, certainly in the English wine world, where supermarkets are particularly dominant in wine distribution between either being in the supermarkets or not being in the supermarkets. And so, you know, for, for me, there's a certain maximum scale to not, not being in the, in the supermarkets. And I think if you look at, at the way some of the more successful, you know, particularly American wine businesses are, are, are structured and work, that focus on, on your private clients, on your having, you know, high-end uh, you know, high experiences available at the winery for private guests uh, and corporate guests, and also symbiotically working with top hotels and restaurants perhaps not just in the UK, but around the world. That, that feels to me like a, a very attractive and long-term business proposition, if you can execute it really well. And uh, that's certainly what we, we're focused on. So, you know, I would say, I would say really, in many ways, we've, we've shamelessly stolen that from the Californians. But I do understand what they, what they do. And, you know, I, I always used to love going out to those Californian wineries, you know, real boutique wines, lovely days in, in, in that part of the American, American countryside. And I think we're trying to do a lot of that here, bringing people out to this sort of beautiful English countryside, 
um, surrounded by ancient woodland, a uh, winery that's very sympathetic to its location, and providing people with, you know, a memorable moment in an otherwise busy and, you know, we all know sometimes depressing, depressing lives, at least from, with the news flow from outside. And so to take people out of that for a short period of time and, and leave them with a memorable moment with friends and family and with our wines, it, you know, feels to me long-term the best way to build that family business. But it's just not consistent to, to do that in the way we do is, and to be involved, I think, with, with you know, large multiples of supermarkets. Interesting. England is doing um, rather a good job in lots of different ways within the wine industry at the moment in yes. tapping in to tourism effectively, to uh, whether those guests are invited, as your guests have to be, for yep. you know, corporate tastings or, or whatever, or, or whether you're open to the public and you have a restaurant, which you've chosen not to do. But across the board, yep. there are lots of different uh, ways of doing it. But England's very, very open to this, isn't it? Yes, it is. Look, look, we're, we're blessed with um, a population, young and old, that loves wine and loves wine experiences. You know, we, we for, for generations now have been, you know, certainly for, for 50 years, have been traveling around, particularly Europe, those beautiful vineyards in, in France and Italy and Spain and Greece and all, and all around Europe. And that is deeply embedded in English culture. And I think people absolutely love those days. And if, they, if, if we can, you know, deliver high quality experiences together with beautiful wines, that has the potential to really provide a revitalizing force, actually, for, for significant parts of the English countryside, because these are very employment-heavy businesses, be it in the vineyard where there's a lot of manual labor, be it in the wineries, be it in tourism. And so I think they're providing, uh, you know, a real, a real, a real ray, of, ray of growth in, into uh, rural England and into lovely parts of the English countryside, and long may that continue. And I think we're only just on the, at the start of that. I mean, I think at the moment a lot of that is domestic, but we're seeing... We've seen, you know, more and more and more interest from um, visitors from overseas. And as we start to take our wines into the U.S. market, into uh, into Japan, into Korea, uh, you can see the spillover effects that brings if you can solve the distribution challenges around that. And I think that's that's certainly the the way forward. We we do have the opportunity to provide some really some really superb experiences. We have beautiful countryside, and I, I would love to see lots of. You know, I think that's definitely the way the English should develop. It's not cheap to produce wines here. You are never going to compete um, in the bulk wine markets. And so I think that really forces uh, producers into high, the high quality end of the wine world. And with the high quality end, end of the wine world has to come uh, memorable experience and, and, and memorable moments. And that is something we ought to be well-placed to provide. We're a small country. It's easy to travel around. We're well-connected. Um, and I think, I think what you're seeing in terms of the growth of English sparkling and English wines more generally is reflecting that. It's more and more people who've had direct contact with the wineries and the vineyards and the wines in England, whether they be English, whether they be from other countries. And you can see that, you know, delivering the underlying growth we're seeing in the market year on year. And have you sort of had any challenges with the great downer of living in this country, which is, of course, the British weather? I mean, uh, the vagaries of um, <laughs> our, our weather systems are never ending yeah. complex. Yeah, they are, of course. I mean, look, I, you know, it, it, it's, all, it's, all a, it's all a question of approach, I suppose. As I say, I'm reasonably entrepreneurial. I see that as a, an inevitable challenge. I'm not somebody who lies awake worrying about what the weather's going to bring me. Uh, but I, I, do, I do worry if, if we can do something about it, and I don't if we can't. And so we spend a lot of time um, responding and reacting to the weather or imminent weather. But look, most of the time, 
you know, providing you've got the basics right, it's all, it's all manageable. And we've been blessed by what certainly appears to be a regularly warming climate. I mean, when I started writing up plans for this back in 2007, eight, you know, we thought we'd have a year in five where we wouldn't be able to ripen the grapes sufficiently to make to make wines at all. And we might have a couple of years that were quite difficult in the number of parcels. And it's looked nothing like that. So, you know, every year we've been able to get our, our, our grapes to, to where we want them from both a sugar ripeness and, and a phenolic ripeness point of view, which is extraordinary. You know, I think in 2018, you'll, you'll remember, David, there was much talk of this being the perfect, perfect vintage for English, English wine, uh, mm. warmest, warmest year in 100 years. Well, 2020 was warmer. 2022 was warmer than 2020 and 23 has just been as warm as 2020. So, you know, in, in, the, um, in, in the years we've experienced since that glorious summer of 2018, we've seen, you know, some very warm years and 19 and 21 were beautiful years to, to grow grapes and make wine as well. So that's all been quite kind to us. You know, I think people, you know, as, as ever, it's all in the detail. So I think this year is a very good case in point, fascinating case in point for what matters in English, English wine production, actually. You, you know, we've, everybody will remember a slightly drizzly damp and what they will think of as quite a cool July and August, certainly if they were trying to sit on the beach in Devon or Cornwall or, or elsewhere in the UK. But in fact, we had the warmest June on record and it was very dry. And so, you know, that matters because there are two moments that matter in, this, in the calendar for me particularly, well, certainly after the, the frost risk has passed. And that is flowering, which is sometime in mid, mid-June. We had a beautiful hot flowering, really lovely fruit set, and all the grapes in the perfect place at the perfect time. So that first, first spot was a tick. July and August were damp, but actually they were quite warm. We, had, we didn't have much, uh, much um, variation between day and nighttime temperatures. And so we were sat at sort of 16 degrees at night and 20 degrees in the day, which is pretty good. And then... The other part of the year that really matters to you is the very first part of ripening, what the French call veraison, just after, you know, around veraison. The first sort of seven to 10 days of veraison, the, the vine is doing a lot of work. It's working really hard on setting up everything it needs to do to get ripening done. And so there's about five times as much goes on uh, per day during that period as there is after that period in the ripening period. So it's very important. This year, we had that extraordinary burst of heat at the start of September right when we needed it for Veraison. And so it, it set the vines on a, a beautiful path to ripening fruit properly and productively, which ended up being the case. So, you know, it, it's inevitably always in the detail. What we really care about is having, you know, nice, dry Septembers and Octobers so that we really are, you know, we really are absolutely fine with the development of mildews and botrytis. And that's what we work really hard on here. Huge amounts of deleafing huge amounts of, of, of work to try to make sure that we can keep those grapes on the vines healthily for that period. And that is the key, because if you, if you leave your, your grapes in a, in a, you know, in, inside a, a closet of, of vine leaves, they will inevitably attract mildews and botrytis and it will make, it, it force you to pick much earlier, which is, you know, leads to slightly thin, slightly acidic wines that are, that are certainly not that interesting and certainly not world class. Labour intensive, of course, but uh, yeah, but you could... usually labour intensive. There is not really a serious way to de-leaf vines um, except by hand. You can start with a, a machine doing something, but it's mostly by hand. But it is vitally important. I mean, that is the difference, I think, year after year and be able to keep your grapes healthily on the vine for 100 plus days. Yeah. And, you know, in damp years like this, that's key. I mean, that we spent the whole of July and August taking, felt like taking all the leaves off the vine. You can, of course, quite do that. You need some photosynthesis. But um, we were certainly removing as many as we could just to keep as much airflow as possible through the vines. 
Yeah, really interesting. And those vines were looking so healthy just at the final stage as they were about to be harvested when I uh, visited you towards yeah, the uh, you. end of, uh, of October. So in short, 23, the harvest, the vintage, you're optimistic. Yeah, look, it's a lovely vintage. I, you know, I know from the the the, uh, the base wines we now have in our in our casts and barrels and tanks, they they taste really good. Um, you never you never quite know what you've got until you you've given them a little longer, and and we go through those blind tastings in April. But yeah, it's clearly an, an excellent vintage um, with some real variation around the vineyard in a good way. Some really interesting variations in the expressions of the grape musts. You know, it's, you know, one of the things I love doing here at Harvest Time. We did a lot this year. Well, we have two big four-ton um, cacao bunch presses here and we'll typically be, we'll often be t- pressing different pinots and different chardonnay side by side and if you take people particularly who are not that familiar with the wine world to taste those musts what we always do is we don't get, get to taste just one as they're pouring out the press but both and what surprises people again and again and again is they taste really quite distinctively different and that's very much the point we're just expressing the differences we get given in the vineyards we're not making wine in that in the sense most people understand we're just trying to really transparently really really allow those natural differences to come through and there are glorious natural differences and this year was very good for that yes i had the uh, privilege of doing that and i can uh, concur <laughs> so um that's great news re uh, 23 um we we have a yes. final question that we tend to ask our guests and okay. um uh it's uh it, it is a bit of a devil um especially if um you are a a lifelong wine lover. Uh, so yes. you will have had many, many magnificent wines. Um, you can have one on a desert island. <laughs> what is your desert <laughs> island wine? Well, I assume I'm not allowed to pick a, a, one, of our, one of our own, of course. So if I was to have one, I suppose I, I've been a, long, a big fan for a long time of, uh, of Francois Aigle, at Aigle in Champagne. And, uh, you know, Aigle Francois Francis Egley benefit from um, some beautiful Pinot Noir vineyards in Ambonay, uh, on chalk, in fact. I think particularly if I was to pick one of them out of all of all those lovely wines I've drunk from him over the years, Le Creer, which is a single parcel in, in Ambonay, uh, would probably be the one. He Usually usually that wine is without a malolactic, um, aged in barrels, quite a bit of time on lees, unfiltered, unfined. So some commonalities with the, with the way we approach uh, winemaking. And, you know, I think it, it, it is a, it's a Blanc de Noir and a really, Le Creer is a beautiful wine. It's one I think I could almost drink endlessly on a desert island. And, you know, the other thing that I love about drinking, and I think all the time now when I drink um, that wine, is it just shows what grapes and styles we might have available to us at 100 Hills in 20 years' time if we keep on with, with, with warming. You know, climate change is all about adaptation as well as mitigation. And um, we're very conscious that we may have more adapting as well as a lot more mitigating to do over the coming coming decades, but if some of that adapting involves it gives us gives us grapes of the quality um, Eglieray have available at their their vineyards in Ambonay, that will that will at least be some consolation. Yes, a positive way to look at uh, what's going on um it's a great pleasure to uh, share your uh, passion and uh, enthusiasm uh, congratulations on what you've already achieved at 100 hills and there's you, plenty more still to come i look forward to uh, following what you get up to but in the meantime uh, thanks so much for joining us on the drinking hour thank you david i promise you there'll be plenty more the drinking hour with david kermode in partnership with club onologique the world through the lens of wine and spirits Well, let's round off this edition by celebrating some IWSC medal winners, as always. And our focus is, surprise, surprise, England. 
in the 2023 judging process. Rames English Sparkling Classic Brute 2018 won not just a gold medal with 95 points, uh, it also scooped a trophy uh, representing uh, the best in show. Uh, from Hampshire, this was assessed by our friend Freddie Bulmer, uh, Rosemary Williams, Roberta Neve, and the judging panel was overseen by Essie Avalan, MW, a previous guest here on The Drinking Hour, of course, a renowned critic and an authority on traditional method sparkling wine. And here's the tasting note. A light, youthful and delicate nose with fresh zest of lemon and lime. The palate is particularly elegant with great acidity and lots of secondary aromas of toast. Offers excellent balance and a pleasingly long finish. Next to another of the great names, scooping a gold medal, Hattingley Valley Wines, Classic Reserve Brute Non-Vintage, 95 points for this. Uh, This one's also from Hampshire, but this time tasted by Matteo Montoni, a master sommelier, Megan Clark, Paolo Brammer and Fianula Sinat, and the panel again overseen by Essie. And here's uh, what they said about this. A smashing, aromatically expressive wine with refined perlage. It first exhibits Sicilian lemon, orange blossom and hints of toast, leading to a concentrated palate laden with baked apple, warm bread and almond milk. Seamless, vibrant, textured and persistent. Sounds delicious. Next, uh, here's a relatively new name whose wines I always love every time I taste them. Roebuck Estates from uh, close to uh, Petworth in West Sussex and their Rosé de Noir Brute 2017 won a strong silver with 92 points. Here's what the judges describe. A delicious and impressively sophisticated sparkling wine packed with aromas of cranberry and raspberry fruit layered upon notes of rose petal, toasted almond and brioche. Wonderfully complex and refined. Another famous name, Gusborne Reserve Late Disgorged Brute 2015. Also a silver medal winner. Here's the all-important tasting notes from the judging panel. A sweet, smoky nose with hints of marshmallow. The palate has a mix of citrus and stone fruit with intense toasted brioche. Offers a rich mouthfeel with good complexity. And finally for now, to Dorset, Langham Wine Estate. Corallian Classic Cuvée Extra Brut Non-Vintage. Silver medal winner, 91 points for this. The judges describe a delightfully pure nose displaying floral, citrus and orchard fruits. The palate is creamy, delicate with plenty of brioche and almond aromas lifted by the mouth-watering acidity towards its bright finish. And talking of finishes, that's it for this week, uh, the first episode of Series 13. Hope you enjoyed it. My thanks again to Stephen Duckett of 100 Hills. If you're yet to discover uh, those wines, then do. Seriously, you'll be impressed. More English expertise to come very soon, as we'll be hearing in a few weeks' time, from Cherry Spriggs at Nye Timber. Looking forward to that. Uh, but for now, thanks for listening and do join us again next time. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits.
To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.